Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 275, King Edward, the almost first king of England. Like almost, so close. Now at its core, this is a project that's aimed at bringing history down from the ivory tower and out to everybody else. Here, we aim to be as accurate and honest as possible while still keeping the study of history as exciting as it should be. And the only way this project keeps going is thanks to members. Becoming a BHP member costs only about a latte a month, but your support means that not only will we get to 1066, but that we will one day reach 1866. And to join in and support this project, you can become a member by going to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. With your support, we'll continue our mission to bring history to anybody who wants to learn it. And of course, as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, there's an exclusive members feed full of new episodes. And you'll also get access to rough transcripts of the regular episodes, so you can finally learn how to spell Hearthwarod in Whalesting. And thank you very much to Patty, Jim, and Helena for signing up already. The story of Edward is undeniably odd. There are events that are, at best, unexplained, and at worst, look potentially horrible. But he's also a man of contradictions, because the one thing that we haven't talked about is the one thing that you're probably not expecting. Edward was a really effective king. In fact, historians like Stenton argue that he waged, quote, one of the best sustained and most decisive campaigns in the whole of the Dark Ages, end quote. And I think you might be right about that, even though I would add that large parts of Edward's successes are owed, at least in part, to Athelflaed. Because many of these wars, as well as the expansion of Alfred's plan for Fortress Wessex, were successful because Edward and Athelflaed worked on the projects together. But, ultimately, thanks to those efforts, Edward was in a great position after his sister's death. And here's how those dominoes that were set up by the siblings finally tipped. Over the last decade, the Danish territories of Lincoln and Nottingham had watched as Edward and Athelflaed encroached upon their lands, and they were moving into the roads that led into their kingdoms from the south and the west. But it was upon the death of Athelflaed and the annexation of Mercia by her brother that those routes ended up entirely in the hands of the West Saxons, specifically in Edward's hands. And the rulers of Lincoln and Nottingham would have been keenly aware that Saxon armies could appear on the horizon at any moment. Whatever natural land buffer they once had was gone. And it wasn't long after that that Nottingham surrendered outright. And Edward not only took the town, but he immediately manned it with a combined force of Anglo-Saxons and Danes. Seeing that, Lincoln folded soon thereafter, and all their Danish and Anglo-Saxon inhabitants also submitted themselves to Edward. The project, which had long been carried out by Edward and Athelflaed, was finally complete. And Edward was now at the climax of his reign. And for the first time, he was also unchallenged within his own dynasty. For better or worse, with his sister dead and his niece deposed, we're now going to see what Edward can do entirely on his own. And it turns out, he was no wallflower. His efforts reshaped and expanded the economic power of his domain south of the Humber. The reshiring that we talked about last week, well, while that seems to have erased Tamworth's power, it also greatly expanded Mercia's economic and defensive capabilities. Within 15 years of Edward's death, 
were seeing coins struck all over his shired territories, including Oxford, Gloucester, Hereford, Shrewsbury, and Chester. We're also seeing bursts of economic activity out of his new military hardpoints. After all, these burrs would be useless unless they were permanently manned. And by permanently manning them, that meant that the new burrs spurred on economic activity as markets moved in to serve those soldiers, much like it happened with the old Roman fortresses. And all of these impacts show how capable Edward was as a ruler. But frankly, he was even more impressive than that. Because King Edward came remarkably close to becoming the first king of England. But to talk about how he nearly got there, and how he fell just a bit short, we're going to need to talk about what was going on in the North. And the fact of the matter is, the North has been critical to the story we've been following for quite a while now. It's just not obvious at the surface. Even though Northumbria had been knocked out of the fight since the Battle of Tenton Hall in 910, Northumbria, and Jorvik in particular, was still having quite an impact on the fortunes and misfortunes of their southern allies. Without the events that were taking place up there, even the skilled machinations of Athelflaed and Edward might not have been enough to command the submission of the five boroughs. It's a strange story, and to tell it right, we have to go back a little. Now, as you know, Northumbria was a political and physical battle royale for quite a long time, but that conflict really kicked into high gear in 902. Before that year, the main conflicts that were happening up there were between the seemingly endless Northumbrian royal dynasties and the Danes. But beginning in 902, we had some new contenders. And that's because of something that happened across the Irish Sea. Now, generally, we don't cover Irish history, and that's not because Irish history isn't important. Rather, it's just due to time constraints and the fact that the key to telling a coherent history comes down to editing your scope. But even though it's not often covered, the truth is that the actions of the Irish could and often do have an enormous impact over their neighbors in Britain. And the reverse holds true as well. And one of those consequential events, one that actually shaped the course of history, took place in 902. It was on that year that the Irish won a great victory over the Norse in Dublin and ejected them from their lands. Now, this was a big win for the Irish, but it came with a cost because those Northmen had to go somewhere after they got kicked out. And it turned out that they headed straight for the nearby coastal lands of Western Britain. And in particular, the west coast of the once mighty kingdom of Northumbria was an ideal location. Generations of internecine war and the more recent decades of war with the Danes had left the kingdom fractured. Politically, socially, economically, the region was in tatters. The status of Northumbria was so chaotic that when a king appears in the history books, it often comes with an asterisk, because oftentimes there's no real way to tell whether this so-called king was anything more than just a minor warlord with a couple villages. Bede's home kingdom was wrecked. And thus, it was thoroughly exposed, and everybody was looking for a peace. And so in came the Norse. But they weren't the only ones, and at about the same time as this, the kingdom of Strathclyde jumped into the scrum. Now you could say, actually, that Strathclyde itself was born from Norse aggression. A generation earlier, they'd faced off with the Northmen at Dumbarton Rock. Only back then, they had a different name, a Brythonic name. Alt Clute. But by the time that the Danes had left, 
Their capital was plundered, their kingdom was dominated, and many of their comrades were dead or enslaved, with even their king being taken back to Dublin in chains. And even when they later escaped Norse control, they just ended up getting subjugated by the Scots. The chaos of that event had left the kingdom broken, and once they finally managed to regain their independence from both Scotland and the Norse, they were no longer Altklut. The kingdom had changed, and they acquired a new name, a Gaelic name, Strathclyde. And it wasn't just a name change. The loss at Dumbarton had changed their culture. Recent excavations indicate that Strathclyde might have been close to the Scandinavian settlement on the Isle of Man, and that Strathclyde itself was becoming a hybrid British-Scandinavian kingdom. But with a history like that, and the sudden flight of large numbers of Norse coming across the Irish Sea, you can imagine that Strathclyde in particular would have been quite concerned. After all, they knew better than most how dangerous the Norse were. And so, in the face of the threat of a wave of Norse raiders coming from Dublin and occupying the western edge of Northumbria, and with the knowledge that Northumbria couldn't really defend itself, we see Strathclyde expanding their borders south along the Solway and reclaiming lands that have been lost to the British for about 300 years. You didn't think that they were going to save Northumbria, did you? That's not how the Heptarchy works. That was free land, and they were going to get it. And so, as Strathclyde advanced along the Solway, the Great Migration from Dublin continued largely unimpeded. And place names and archaeological finds demonstrate a mix of Scandinavian and Irish elements, all of which suggest that Lancashire and Cumbria were one of the waypoints that were sought by the homeless, former ruling class of Dublin. And it was that sudden influx of homeless Northmen that brought us Ingemund and his followers. And we know the story from there. Athelred and Athelflaed defeated him in his attempt to take Chester, and Ingemund was chased out and eventually drifted into obscurity. But Ingemund wasn't the only Northman who, after getting evicted in 902, went looking for new lands. There were a lot of them, and one of them is thought to have been a man named Ragnald. Now even in the records, Ragnald is a bit of a shadowy figure. It's difficult to pin down his story. However, we do see coins being stamped in his name, and eventually he even appears in the Chronicle in 920. But that leaves about 18 years between his likely eviction from Dublin to when he earns a mention in the Chronicle. And 18 years is a long time, but it's thought that during that time, he was likely on the Isle of Britain. And that's partially because we have other records that can help flesh things out. However, those records get a bit messy. You see, there are a few entries in the Annals of Ulster and the history of St. Cuthbert that mention him. And we also have some stories that come out of Durham and indications in the Pictish Chronicle. And what we can piece together from those sources is a bit rambling, but ultimately quite informative. So, Ragnald appears to have been part of the Dublin diaspora that fled in 902. And after leaving, it looks like he settled somewhere on the Isle of Man, or maybe in southern Scotland. And actually, he later appears in the record as a king. He's sometimes called the King of the Dark Gales, which has led scholars to theorize that he might have established himself as king over the Isle of Man, or some southern part of Scotland. Though, if this was the case, we can't pinpoint precisely where or when he reigned, other than the fact that it would have been sometime after 902. But during this same time, when Ragnald was establishing himself, Northumbria was continuing in its utter collapse. 
It was eight years after the flight from Dublin, where Northumbria fought at the Battle of Tenton Hall, and were defeated by a combined Mercian West Saxon army so thoroughly that they were knocked out of the fight for the South. And that defeat further destabilized the kingdom for a very simple reason. See, Northumbria wasn't like Mercia or Wessex. It was already a patchwork of both Danish and Anglo-Saxon territories. And as you might remember from Northumbria's early history, Northumbrian nobles didn't let a minor thing like shared culture get in the way of stabbing each other to death. So when you imagine Northumbria, don't imagine a fight with neat, predictable chains of loyalty and cultural grudges. For the most part, everyone was out for themselves, and anyone could have been a potential enemy. So the defeat at Tenton Hall, with the loss of so many warriors, took that bad situation and made it way worse. Because the loss of such a large army meant that there was now a significant power vacuum in the north. And there were all manner of ambitious and bloodthirsty nobles looking to jump a rank or two. So that loss at Tenton Hall was catastrophic for Northumbria. But here's the thing, it wasn't necessarily good for Wessex either. In fact, it was kind of a bit of a problem, because while the instability in the north was a big part of what made West Saxon and Mercian expansionism possible, that same instability also meant that the north was ripe for a takeover. And if someone could come in and fully unify all the factions under a single functional banner, well, Wessex could kiss his expansionism programs goodbye and it actually might find itself in existential danger. Don't forget, Northumbria, when it's actually unified, tends to be a pretty big heavyweight. And that was the situation that Ragnall just jumped into. And when he arrived in Northumbria, we're told that he came with a great fleet. He'd come looking to rumble. But the story gets a little bit weird from here. The problem is that the history of St. Cuthbert, which is one of the main sources for the story of Ragnald, tells us that he arrived with a fleet at around 914, and then he started kicking up a ruckus, which culminated in a battle at a place called Corbridge. And thus far, there's not too much surprising there. But then that same document mentions this almost exact same story again at 918. And that's legitimately confusing, and you can see some historians tying themselves into knots trying to make sense of the two battles of Corbridge, because the story is pretty much entirely repeated, even the location. And so some of these scholars come up with these really intense theories, but other scholars, and I happen to agree with them, don't think that Ragnald invaded, fought at Corbridge, and then had so much fun that he decided to leave and then do it all over again four years later at Corbridge because, hey, you already know where Corbridge is. And they don't just reject the two battles of Corbridge because it honestly sounds a bit unreasonable. They also reject it on the basis of the document. See, the truth is that the history of St. Cuthbert is the only source for the Battle of Corbridge in 914, the so-called First Battle of Corbridge. However, the 918 Battle of Corbridge also appears in the Annals of Ulster and the Pictish Chronicle. Furthermore, the history of St. Cuthbert wasn't exactly the most rigorous of documents, even by Dark Ages standards. And that's partially due to the fact that it was a religious document, so it was seeking to convey a spiritual truth rather than a factual one. But it's also just because the chronology is known to have huge problems, and the scribes of this document, just like other scribes from this era, would sometimes talk about events like they all happened on the same year, 
And only by looking at supporting evidence have we been able to figure out that they're actually talking about things that happened over the course of many years, and they compiled the whole story into one entry for reasons. Think about it this way. If a scribe wrote, in 2011, Jamie started the British History Podcast and produced hundreds of episodes, worked closely with his co-producer Z, and married her. If you read that, you might not realize that it all took place over the course of seven years, and you definitely wouldn't know precisely when Z and I got married. And so, if there was a follow-up, in 2017, Jamie married Z, you might be a bit confused and wonder if I somehow came across another Z, ditched the first one, and had a runaway romance with this second Z. That's kind of where we're at with the 914 entry in the history of St. Cuthbert. And so for the BHP, we're just going to focus on the battle that's written about by multiple sources. The Battle of Corbridge in 918. Because honestly, I think 914 and 918 are talking about the same battle. So, at some point between 914 and 918, Ragnald, the king of the Dark Gales, grew tired of his raiding through Lothian. And he went in search of greener pastures. In Waterford, Ireland, he joined up with a large fleet led by two Jarls, Otir and Gragabai. Their target was the weakened kingdom of Northumbria, specifically the independent Anglo-Saxon holding of Bamburgh. Now, since the time of Halfdan, whenever we've talked about Northumbria, we've talked about their Danish overlords. So you might be surprised that there's an independent Anglo-Saxon holding. But don't forget that we've discussed in prior episodes about how the Danes weren't engaging in a culture war and actually worked with many Anglo-Saxons. Also remember that Northumbria was unstable as hell and the House of Wessex was working to take advantage of it by actively working to acquire lands and then position friendly Anglo-Saxon nobles within them. We see documents indicating purchases and all kinds of stuff. And so here we are, at some point between 914 and 918, and we're reading about the Elderman of Bambara, a guy named Aeldred, son of Aedwulf. And we're told that he's friends with King Edward of Wessex. And his father, Aedwulf, was friends with King Alfred. So apparently Alfred and Edward's efforts at cultivating friendly Anglo-Saxon nobles in the north was working. But being an independent stronghold, with your main allies located hundreds of miles away, did come with its own risks. And those risks were made quite clear when Ragnald and his fleet arrived. Elderman Eldred was alone. And so he did what I think any sensible person would do in his situation. He fled. But he didn't flee, or perhaps he possibly couldn't flee, to any of his nearby Danish neighbors. And curiously, despite his friendship with Edward, he also didn't run south to Wessex. Instead, he headed far to the north, all the way to Scotland to the court of King Constantine II. And as he ran, Ragnald and his army moved through their newly acquired lands of Bambara, and were probably a bit surprised at how easy that was. But, as I said, I'm not precisely sure when that initial landing and occupation happened. It really could have happened any time between 914 and 918. So as a consequence, I don't know how long Ragnald had to dig into Bambara nor do I know how long Eldred pled to King Constantine II for support. But what we do know is that in 918, King Constantine II and Elderman Eldred were ready. They would bring war upon Ragnald and restore Eldred to his seat of power. 
So King Constantine II readied his army and marched, and Elderman Eldred and his supporters gathered together and joined them, along with Eldred's own brother, a man named Uhtred. And as they moved into Northumbria, they picked up other Anglo-Saxon nobles and warriors supporting their cause, and they continued their march south. And then the story gets a bit weird again. See, Ragnald captured Bambara. His newly acquired lands were in Bambara. You would think that Constantine and Eldred's army would advance upon Bambara and fight him there. But that's not what happened. Instead, we're told that Constantine and Eldred continued their march past Bambara and continued their advance south for over 50 miles before finally confronting Ragnald at a place called Corbridge. Now, Corbridge was at this time a small village near the River Tyne. Geographically, it was closest to a town called Hexham. And I'm left wondering, why did the battle take place there? I mean, it's possible that Ragnald was confronted in Bambara, then retreated south and was finally cornered in Corbridge. It's also possible, I suppose, that Ragnald was already in the south because he was in the middle of his own expansion. Again, remember, we don't know exactly the timeline of these events. It could have been years. Furthermore, it's possible that the scribe writing these events down had never seen either Bambara or Corbridge and just mixed the whole thing up. We have no idea, but it's definitely odd. But, for whatever reason, they were both in Corbridge. And the Annals of Ulster tell us that the Scandinavian army was large enough to be formed into four battalions on the banks of the River Tyne. Furthermore, the scribes were keen to point out that the leader of the Scandinavians weren't just some random raiders pulled from nearby ships. The grandson of Ivor the Boneless was leading one of these battalions. Two others were led by the powerful Jarls Otter and Gragabai. And the scribes even go so far as to let us know that even the lesser battalion was being led by the young lords, whatever that meant. The point the scribes seemed to be making here was that the army arrayed on the banks of the Tyne was a veteran army. But that didn't deter King Constantine II of Scotland. And so he and Eldred arranged their forces and advanced. And almost immediately, the battle turned against the Scandinavians. The Scots began hacking their way through their lines, and were told that this was a, quote, very great slaughter of the heathens, end quote. And then it happened. Both of the allied Jarls, Otir and Gragabai, fell in battle. And upon seeing the death of their leaders, their battalions fled the field. Half of the Scandinavian army was lost. And then the third battalion broke. Now there was just a single unit of Scandinavians trying to hold off the full might of the Scottish reconquest. It appears that the Viking warlords were no match for the army of Scots and Anglo-Saxons. But have you noticed who was missing from this account? Ragnald. But Ragnald was there. He was just hiding nearby with an enormous force. And right at the moment where triumph seemed within the grasp of King Constantine and Elderman Eldred, Ragnald and his army charged the Scots from behind. Now, when I read about these maneuvers, I often wonder what it would be like to be a victim of it. Warfare in this era were large-scale shoving matches punctuated with the occasional stab. So being in the middle of it would have been loud, chaotic, and claustrophobic. And so I wonder... As the warbands were locked tightly together, hacking away at their enemies in front of them, if they noticed the drumbeat of footsteps from the rear. I can't imagine that they would have actually heard them. 
which means that the first warning that they might have had that they were flanked and actually encircled could have come at the moment when the first Scotsman took a spear to the back. And consider this. Shield-based close combat tactics requires tight organization. It took a moment to form up your shields and present a unified front. But an ambush like this happened quick. And so as they tried to turn around and defend themselves, Ragnald and his men were already at their backs, butchering their way through the lines. So even if you managed to turn around quickly, there's no guarantee you'd be safe because the man to your right or the left might not have been so quick. And then suddenly, your flank is exposed. The panic of an ambush like this must have been overwhelming. But Constantine and Eldred still had a sizable force. And so they managed to adjust to this second front, but not before taking heavy casualties. And the fighting continued. In fact, the battle continued long through the day, and it was only nightfall that forced both sides to break off the attack. The day had been long and hard. And now, Constantine had to contend with the fact that Ragnald's ambush had cost his army a great many lives. What had begun early in the day as a triumphant advance had ended in the slaughter of his men. Furthermore, many of his Anglo-Saxon allies were now bleeding out on the battlefield. Only Eldred and his brother Uhtred remained. This wasn't going to work. And so King Constantine II decided to cut his losses, and he gathered his army and retreated back to Scotland. And just like that, the Anglo-Saxon-Scottish resistance within Northumbria was over. This great campaign had ended in an absolute catastrophe. It was so bad that the scribes writing about it in the history of St. Cuthbert tried to look for some sort of divine explanation for the loss at Corbridge. But they come up short and simply state that they don't know what sin caused God to turn on them. And now, standing on the battlefield of Corbridge in 918, Ragnald was uncontested. And then something curious happens. At roughly the same time as this battle, Athelflaed accepted the submission of Jorvik. And it makes you wonder if Jorvik might have been reacting to this new rising power in Northumbria and were looking to ally with the devil they knew rather than the devil they didn't. Unfortunately, we probably won't ever know because they didn't write down their reasoning and Athelflaed died before the arrangement could be completed. But as Jorvik was making deals... Ragnald was sharing out the lands that he gained in battle. And we can presume that those were the lands that were once held by the Anglo-Saxon lords who died in the Battle of Corbridge. But get this, not only are we told that Eldred and Uhtred, sons of Aedwulf, survived that battle, but we also see the sons of Aedwulf appear later on in the Chronicle as Northumbrian nobility. So even though the Scottish reconquest failed, the sons of Aedwulf still had positions of power in Northumbria. And that's interesting, and it makes me want to talk to Ragnald and find out what his plans were. I mean, Northumbria had a large Anglo-Saxon population, so are we seeing Ragnald trying to extend an olive branch here? Sort of like an effort to say, look, I'm going to rule, but I will respect your people, provided that they submit to me. And as proof of that, I've spared your ruling dynasty of Bamborough. I don't know if that was the plan, but it kind of feels that way. And it wouldn't have been a bad idea considering Ragnald's ambitions. Because in the following year, in 919, while Edward was building birds on the edge of Chester and leading an army to occupy his own town of Manchester, Ragnald gathered his forces 
and advanced upon Jorvik. Now, the city of Jorvik was short on allies, and Northumbria was just too unstable to offer much resistance to a Viking warlord and his army. And so Ragnald's forces stormed the city, and following that battle, he gained a new title. He was now Ragnald, King of Jorvik. Now, here was a man with the military backing and the audacity necessary to take what was ultimately a failed state and turn it into his own kingdom. And I can imagine that Northumbria's neighbors, upon seeing this, were starting to sweat. No one could say what he would do next. But he was gaining a lot of power within Northumbria, a kingdom that had long been a military heavyweight. And to make matters worse, King Ragnald had already shown that he had the ability to form alliances and gather soldiers in Ireland. That capability, combined with his elevation, could change everything. And adding to the anxiety, shortly after Ragnald's elevation to the throne, we see his cousin Citric exploding onto the scene. Like his cousin, Citric was a Viking noble with a penchant for raiding. And we're told that he gathered an army in Dublin, crossed the Channel, struck Davenport in Cheshire, and then retreated. Now, we're not told the scale or purpose of this raid. It might have just been an independent raid unconnected to Ragnald's elevation. Or Citric might have been probing, or Citric might have been probing Edward's defenses in advance of a full campaign led by Ragnald of Jorvik. We don't know. But either way, it seems to have rattled Edward. So in early 920, King Edward gathered his army and marched upon Nottingham. And Nottingham sat on the River Trent. And the River Trent cut a straight line from the Humber directly into his kingdom. Edward must have known that if this new King Ragnald wanted to strike into his lands, all he'd need to do was board a ship and sail down that river. It was a huge hole in his defenses that just couldn't be ignored. So Edward marched to Nottingham and ordered that a double burr be constructed on the River Trent. And the two forts on either side of the river were then connected by a low bridge. If any raiders wanted to sail up the Trent, they would have to contend with those forts first. And meanwhile, as they were doing it, the local forces in the Midlands would be given a chance to reinforce the defending burrs. By building there, Edward was closing down a major highway into his kingdom for anyone who might have wanted to come in with hostile intent. You know, someone like this new King Ragnald. Next, Edward marched upon Bakewell, which is near Sheffield. And once there, he ordered a burr to be constructed and manned. Now, Bakewell was critical because it was just down the way from two valleys. One valley led north and the other went northwest but both of them would provide an army an easy route into Edward's lands from the north. By placing the burr at Bakewell, he could stop an army taking either route. So once again, Edward was solidifying his defenses along the northern border of his kingdom. And that same burr at Bakewell could also function as a pretty good starting point for any West Saxon expedition going north. Edward's construction projects on the border were telegraphing that he and the kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons were not to be trifled with. And that message must have come across loud and clear, because at the end of 920, after the rise of Ragnald and Citric's raid and Edward's show of force, we get to one of the most famous lines in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Quote, 
And then the king of the Scots, and all the people of the Scots, and Ragnald, and the sons of Aedwulf, and all who live in Northumbria, both English and Danish, Norsemen and others, and also the king of the Strathclyde Welsh, and all the Strathclyde Welsh, chose him as father and lord, end quote. The him here being Edward. What we're reading of here is a massive multilateral treaty, and a bare reading of the Chronicle makes it seem like this treaty came out of nowhere. Frankly, the scribes didn't do a very good job of explaining why Northumbria, Scotland, Bamborough, and Strathclyde would all come to the table with Edward. And if you're just left with the text alone, you kind of get the impression that all of these rulers were just impressed with Edward's construction skills. But hopefully, right about now, you're realizing why I spent most of this episode talking about the Scots, the Sons of Aedwulf, Strathclyde, and the rise of King Ragnald. Because it wasn't construction that brought them to the table. They all had reasons for wanting this to work. They were all getting something out of it. The Sons of Aedwulf had the clearest motive. Poor Eldred and Uhtred were pretty much boned, having been stranded in Norse territory, and they were probably all too happy to have the protection of a more powerful kingdom, just in case history repeated itself and another fleet arrived on their shores. Similarly, the Scots needed a bit of a reprieve. They were only a couple years off of that devastating battle at Corbridge, and being a part of a multilateral treaty that included Ragnald had the potential of putting an end to any aggression coming out of Northumbria, because the agreement basically meant that the Scots were now part of Edward's protectorate, and ostensibly, that meant that they were all part of the same team. They also might have hoped that this treaty and the accompanying allyship with Edward might slow down Ragnald's Scandinavian allies including his cousin, Citric. And for its part, Strathclyde was just out on the raggedy edge, and they already had a history with Scandinavian aggression, so I'm pretty sure they were eager to stem that risk. But beyond that, they had just annexed large portions of Cumbria from the traditional lands of Northumbria. And you might have noticed from that quote I just gave you that there's no mention that Edward demanded that they return those lands. And consequently, scholars argue that by being part of this agreement, they were getting Edward's confirmation of the annexation, which isn't a bad deal. And as for Ragnald, well, he was reigning over a kingdom that had no history as a kingdom. He essentially invented it. Ragnald of Jorvik got the best deal out of all of them. He got recognition of his kingdom and his supremacy over it. But what did Edward get? Well, like the Scots and Strathclyde Britons, he got a potential reprieve from war. He also acquired new allies that would be obligated to support him if there should be any new wars that kicked up. But it also came with a heavy price. Edward had been advancing really rapidly over the last few years. He was nearly the king of England. There was just one territory left to conquer. But by acknowledging and allying with the Viking kingdom of Jorvik, Edward was abandoning any hope of annexing Northumbria. Now that Jorvik was a kingdom, all he had was a claim of being a protectorate over his neighbors to the north, which isn't much. And he was so close to forming England. But like I said, Edward was a practical king, and this certainly was a practical decision to make, especially since I'm not that sure that he had the capability to fight Ragnald, because Edward had some pretty big problems at home, and we'll get to that next episode. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can join us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.